Thank you for that reading, Drew. You did really well. Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Alex, and I serve as lead pastor here at Knox, and it's my pleasure to welcome you to the church, to, the, to our worship service this morning, to add my word of welcome to what Sam said earlier. Today, we are starting a new sermon series, and it's focused on the hospitality of Jesus, where the title of the series is Inviting Jesus, because there's something about Jesus that draws us in always. There's something that we find extraordinary about him. He's inviting in a way that is unique. Jesus represents God's hospitality to the world. And so over the next four weeks, we're going to explore the unique qualities that made Jesus so inviting. And we're going to look at some specific invitations that he issues to people, encounters that Jesus has in the gospel with people who are searching for something or other. We'll see also how we're called to extend that invitation ourselves. As we receive and accept the invitation of Jesus, we extend the invitation to others, especially in a city where loneliness is so epidemic and where we always seem to keep one another at a distance. So in the passage we read in Luke 19, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. He stops in Jericho. Now these are real places we read about in the Bible. It may help us to look at a map to get a sense of where Jesus has come from and where he is going. You can see in the middle, if you note the Sea of Galilee in the north, the River Jordan flows south to the Dead Sea, but down towards the bottom of the map, among the hills in the green countryside of Judea, lies Jericho. And so Jesus was in the Galilee region in the north by the Sea of Galilee, that lake at the top, and had been traveling south. And he was on his way, ascending, climbing the hills towards Jerusalem. Jericho, where he stopped on his way to Jerusalem, was a rich, prosperous city on the eastern border of Judea. In the Old Testament, it's referred to as the City of Palms. And Jericho flourished thanks to an abundance of water from underground springs. But even more, the city was thriving then and still today because of all the trade that passed through it, trade with Arabia and Asia. Verse 1 says Jesus was passing through Jericho. A lot of people and a lot of merchants did likewise. Jericho was a gateway city, and it still is today. But I'm sure for Jesus, all he was thinking about that day as he traveled through Jericho was that it was his final stop before his true destination, Jerusalem. And Jesus wasn't the only one headed for Jerusalem either. For Jews, their hearts were always set on Jerusalem, the city of David. Jerusalem was the source of salvation, the home of the temple where you could find God's glory, his substance, his presence. It was where heaven met earth, where God was at home in Jerusalem. This is the first time that this word salvation has appeared in Luke's gospel since its earliest pages. Back in chapter 2, Simeon was in the temple not long after the first Christmas, after the birth of Jesus, and he met Jesus as a baby. 
And he exclaimed, Lord, my eyes have seen your salvation. Now, with the way that Christians go throwing that word salvation around, you might think it would show up a lot more in the gospel according to Luke. But no, it shows up in chapter 2, Simeon refers to it, and then here in chapter 19. So today we learn about what happens when Jesus comes to stay. When the good news of salvation in Jesus comes home with us, it makes all the difference. So we're going to look at three aspects of this story. Three pictures in Luke 19. First of all, the tree and what it represents. Secondly, the conversation between Jesus and Zacchaeus, the invitation Jesus offers. And thirdly, the house of Zacchaeus, how Zacchaeus, with Jesus alongside him, returns home. And that's when things start to get interesting. So we learn that Zacchaeus was the chief tax collector in Jericho, which means he was a very wealthy person. Then we notice that the crowd wasn't letting him see Jesus. Now this story has long been a Sunday school favorite because kids can relate to not being able to see past adults. But it wasn't just because Zacchaeus was short that he wasn't able to see The crowd that day in Jericho would have been actively keeping Zacchaeus out, excluding him because they hated the guy. That's how people in Jericho felt about Zacchaeus. I'm sure they envied his wealth, but also Zacchaeus was the chief tax collector and the way he'd gotten rich was by cheating people, was by exploiting people. The whole system allowed him to take advantage of others. He was a Jew, but he had the power of the Roman Empire behind him. Zacchaeus worked for the enemy, the occupiers, and everyone in Jericho despised him as a result. They turned their backs on him, and they would not let him through. Not just on this one occasion, but all the time, in all kinds of ways, subtle and overt And so Zacchaeus was a lonely man. He kept his people, he kept his distance from the people of Jericho. And I'm willing to bet that he wasn't happy either. On the surface, he was doing well, but on the inside, he was deeply unsatisfied. We see this all the time in the lives of the rich and the famous, don't we? Whether it's Hollywood or Bay Street, people with tons of money seem to not get what they're looking for when they arrive at that place of wealth, of fame, of fortune. Their marriages fall apart. They suffer from all kinds of problems personally in their families. Zacchaeus was no exception. And so when he heard about Jesus healing, about Jesus forgiving and changing people's lives, when he heard these stories about Jesus, he was curious. And even more, what he heard about Jesus awakened something deep within him, a longing for something more than what he'd achieved. So he ran up ahead and he climbed a sycamore fig tree to get a better look. He took the initiative to see Jesus, and he seems eager here, but I think also Zacchaeus was feeling pretty good about being up that tree, about being at a distance from Jesus about being in the very back pew. We're like that too. 
we would rather not get up close. You can see some empty spots at the front of the church. Is it a coincidence? We'd rather be at a safe distance. We call it that, right? There's safety the farther away you are from someone. How are you hiding from Jesus right now? How are you not allowing him to get close? Because that is always at the heart of Jesus, to come close to us. How are you avoiding him in your life today? Maybe you want a glimpse of Jesus, but nothing too direct, nothing too personal, nothing that would get in the way of what you've got planned. I think a lot of us are really, maybe surprisingly, comfortable with our unhappy lives. We don't want to leave what has become familiar to us, even if it's sad and small in its own way. We are up that tree in a way ourselves, and we don't want to come down. But God always surprises us. He will do a new thing in our lives if we're even just a little open to him. Zacchaeus was not expecting Jesus to notice him, but that's exactly what happened. And so from the tree to the conversation, Jesus says to Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. That's a bit forward, isn't it? Earlier, we exchanged the peace. We greeted each other. If someone came up to you while we were doing that, if they'd come up to you and said, I must come to your house today for lunch, forget the pizza, I'm coming to your place, you would find that strange, I think. You might even be a little freaked out by that. I remember being in a church many years ago in Vancouver where during the greeting time, the pastor had an idea, not a good idea. And that was that people should greet each other, but when they greeted each other, they should look deeply into each other's eyes. He told us to do this. Yeah. I think there were a few people who left the church that day. We want to be at a safe distance from each other. So if somebody comes to you and says, I'm coming to your house today, they better have some kind of reason. They better have something to offer. They better have an authority. And Jesus had all of those things. Also, in that culture, by going to the house of Zacchaeus, Jesus was showing him that Zacchaeus was forgiven. It meant so much more to go over to someone's place at that time in that culture. Jesus was showing Zacchaeus that He was welcomed back into the community of the chosen. Among those who are faithful, Zacchaeus, who must have had the guiltiest conscience of anyone in Jericho. That's what it means when Jesus calls Zacchaeus a son of Abraham in verse 9 at the end of this passage. Going to someone's house in Jericho at that time meant not only acceptance, but it meant a complete embrace. You can think of it this way. Jesus is basically saying to Zacchaeus, a complete stranger, I love you. I know how hurt you are. I know where you need me most. 
and I'm coming into your life with my love, with my forgiveness, with all the change that I bring. And Jesus does that, you might have noticed, at the cost of the crowd's favor. He does that also before there's any change in the man's behavior. Isn't this what we find so inviting about Jesus? That he doesn't, like we are prone to, he doesn't go after the people he can get something out of. He doesn't curry favor with those who have influence and power, with the beautiful people. No, Jesus goes right to the one who is most despised, most rejected, most excluded, most outcast. So we're exactly two weeks into 2024. If you made New Year's resolutions, you are right on the edge today, my friend. 50% of resolutions fail right about now. 75% will be abandoned by the end of the month. Now, we don't talk about that failure because it's so ordinary, so predictable, and kind of depressing. Most of us, I think, don't even bother with resolutions because we know the numbers or because we've grown cynical. But the world never stops that you must resolve to get better, that you must make a name for yourself, get richer, happier, thinner, healthier, do things, achieve things, go places. And religion can make the same demands. Religion says change, live the right way, and God will accept you. But the Christian message is different. It's actually the opposite of that. Christianity says God has already accepted you. And in light of that invitation, true and lasting change has become possible. Jesus says salvation has come to this house. Religion points to what's external and says, do this, do that, and then you will be saved. Our secular culture insists on achievement. But the gospel says, Zacchaeus, salvation has come to your house today. Salvation walked in freely as a gift. Now you'll see what happens. Jesus' name means salvation. And so in verse 9, when Jesus says salvation has come to this house today, he's really saying, it's me. I have come to this house. We think we have to do something. We think we have to earn it. We think it's on our shoulders. And so we follow the crowd. We crave approval. We want them to like us. We look for significance and meaning in wealth, in accomplishments, in relationships, and we end up disappointed every time. But Zacchaeus shows us the way. He had only to welcome the Lord gladly. And the effect was immediate. He's come close from that distance in the tree. He's heard the words of Jesus, this invitation. And now he's going home. Jesus is coming with him. And he begins to live his life differently. Zacchaeus shares his wealth with the poor. He tries to put, wrong the wrong, tries to put right the wrongs he had done to others. Martin Luther once wrote that for the Christian, there are three conversions that are necessary. 
First of all, the conversion of the heart. We see that here with Zacchaeus. Then the conversion of the mind. That is a longer process. And finally, the conversion of the purse. That might be the one we struggle with the most. But Zacchaeus got all of them at once. The transforming presence of Jesus changed him from a man who was closed off from others, behind the walls of his villa, to someone who had opened up to God and to the people of Jericho. Jesus is open to Zacchaeus, who then opens his home and his life to God. So let's get practical about this for a minute. What does this mean for us? Does it mean that we're supposed to give away half of what we own to the poor and to repay anyone we've wronged four times over? In the Old Testament, it's clear that God requires 10%. We sometimes call that tithing, which literally means one-tenthing. But in the New Testament, it doesn't tell us precisely what to give. And so the Apostle Paul sums this up in 2 Corinthians. He doesn't give us a rule about charitable giving. Rather, he gives us a principle when he writes, the one who plants generously will get a generous crop. You must, each of you, decide in your own heart how much to give. And don't give reluctantly or in response to pressure. For God loves a person who gives cheerfully. And God will generously provide everything you need. Then you will always have what you need and plenty left over to share with others. Christians don't see tithing. We don't see giving from our own wealth as a depletion of our resources. Rather, giving what we have away opens us up to the fullness of Jesus. When we make a sacrifice, when we give money to the church or to any good cause, God loosens our grip on the material things in our lives. It's a step towards freedom, though we struggle to see it that way. God reminds us that we have all we need in him, and he fills us with thanksgiving. He draws our attention to a more lasting harvest. In Christ, God pours himself out for us, and he shows us that the way for us to thrive is by helping others to thrive. The way to flourish is to lend ourselves to the flourishing of others. And you see it with Zacchaeus here. He was closed off. He kept people at a distance. He was alone and lonely, but something incredible must have happened between verses 8 and 9. Can you imagine the transformation? Zacchaeus received the invitation of Jesus, accepted it, and then extended it far and wide. Last week, we had guest preachers with us, Philip and Robin Serez, and we heard about suffering, the suffering in their family, and we heard about healing, their longing for healing, and how God had answered their prayers for healing in ways they hadn't anticipated. Zacchaeus, I think, here experiences a kind of healing. He had wronged people, and he had suffered the consequence in his own unhappiness. But when Jesus comes into his life, we're left to imagine the way that healing plays out in the days, weeks, and years to come. The way it affected the whole town of Jericho. We can imagine all the people invited into his home. The people who had been consumed by hate, maybe hate 
of Zacchaeus or hate for their neighbors. People he brought together in a new spirit of forgiveness. The laughter, the creativity, the restoration that flowed from those new friendships. The way that lives and wealth and possessions were shared. But we, don't, we really don't have to imagine it because that story is told throughout the New Testament and we've seen it in our own lives. You've heard it this morning already. The refugee family that will soon be on their way to us from Afghanistan. We have opened our home to them. Why? Well, because Jesus asked us to. This past week, we... Our ministry to single moms met. Every two weeks we open our house, we open this building to a group of single moms and we try to bless them and encourage them. This past week we had 14 single moms join us. It's happening all over this place, which is really a community. All of it, for each of us, like for Zacchaeus, started with an invitation from Jesus. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to Zacchaeus, Come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. Have you heard that invitation that Jesus gives us? If you've responded to it, if Jesus has come into your life to stay, then you're called, like Zacchaeus, to extend the invitation. In Luke 19, Zacchaeus learns that Jesus is the true source of salvation. Not a set of rules, not a body of doctrine, but a person, a relationship. In a world where we're told you have to make your own destiny, you have to watch out for your own self-interest, it's only by God's grace that we can become these cheerful givers, people who no longer hide from God, people who no longer complain and grumble, but people who are filled with joy and gratitude. We have the wrong idea about happiness. We think we have to continuously add new things, stuff to our lives, that we must increase to be happy. But Jesus comes into our lives, into our homes, and turns that assumption upside down. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that through his poverty, you might become rich. Through Jesus, we've received the freedom to live with true generosity. And he invites us to share what we have learned, what we have gained with him. On February 7th, we will be kicking off an Alpha series at Knox. How many of you have been part of an Alpha course in the past? Would you raise your hand up high? It's about a quarter of you. How many of you have heard of Alpha? That's well over half of you. If you didn't put up your hand, you might want to check it out. Alpha is an opportunity to share a meal, get to know some people, and to ask the really simple but profound questions about life. Why am I here? What is this all for? And to see if God might be part of the answer. But today especially, I want to encourage you 
to start praying about extending an invitation to someone to come to Alpha with you. For our reflection time today, we're going to watch a video that helps us imagine those possibilities.